welcome uh, to the Lead Generation Podcast, friends. It's another week and it's another episode uh, here with my good friend, Michael Martin. As always, and before we introduce our guest, I want Michael to do a commercial. Uh, do a commercial for anything you want, Michael, but specifically, because I think it's coming out soon, tell people again about Jesus the Imagination. What Funny you should mention that because today I got the proof copy. Really? And I, I went through the whole thing and then I made a few, few edits. But, and it's got actually a new design too. So Jesus, the imagination number six, flesh and spirit should be out, I'd say within a month for sure. Cool. Looks good. The last one we did, Divine Feminine, at that point, because I've been part of all but one, but even that one I was kind of part of because I knew some of the people who put essays in, you did say that you thought the Divine Feminine, as I do, was maybe the best one ever. How do you rank this one coming out? Well, you know what? It's kind of weird because... Um... I, I was really hard for me to get through this one because you know, my wife had cancer and all this that happened. So I was totally, you know, distracted, which is why it's coming out so late too. Um, but then when I looked at it today, I was like, I was thinking, wow, these are some pretty good essays and some good poetry. So awesome. I think it's definitely the poetry. I think it's the strongest poetry huh. as, a, as a group. And there's some yeah. really strong essays. I mean, I really loved yours too. Oh, Which, good, good. You know, when I got to read it again, it's, it's I think it's about your best essay. It's been in Really? Oh, cool, cool. I'm glad to hear that. It's uh it's actually, I'll introduce today's guest. It's actually on a subject that is uh of deep interest. Uh my son Aiden Sauters, our guest today. But the um before we get into today's subject, which is gonna focus on uh, the personality and the phenomenon of Jordan Peterson and something about you know the generation. Uh, Generation Z, some things about that in Jordan Peterson. But uh, Aiden is uh, more well-read on Guido Preparata's central thing of perishable currency than I am. He's actually plowing through the major book called The Natural Economic Order. And it might come up why uh, a lot of people know that Jordan Peterson, I'm kind of like burying the lead, but Jordan Peterson, you know, he's had some mental health problems and things. And Aiden has a theory that like the thing that's missing in his philosophy is perishable currency, but Aiden, like if you can introduce yourself and allow me to, we'll draw us back to that later. Can you tell our, our listeners and our viewers a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so um, I'm a senior at St. Bonaventure. I'm a psychology major, and my goal would be uh, I have my own clinical practice one day, and that's the end goal. I'm very, very interested in disc golf. I test almost all my ideas through disc golf, and the idea is not practical for disc golf or in life in general. I'm not too much. <laughs> we'll to unpack that a little bit. That's I guess I didn't know you'd even phrase it that way. Well, Aiden is my youngest of four. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. It's another way of saying if it's not pragmatic and like useful for lived experience, if it's too theoretical, what's the point? That's central to him. That's I'm central all about to that. Him. Yeah. <laughs> Michael's like, I can dig that. Yeah, I can. Yeah. Uh, I like deeds, not words. I mean, the words are nice, right? But I want to see something happen. Yes. Yeah. You could be teasing an episode we're going to do on distributism sometime too here, Michael, with yeah, that type oh, of language. Yeah. Yeah. Don't even get me started. <laughs> fun. Well, let's let's jump in. Let's jump in, Aiden. Okay. And uh, Michael, I know you've got you're like you're just sharp on all these things, but I want to I want to begin uh, maybe it's something Aiden and I have in common. And Michael, you know, you're a university professor, but 20 years in campus ministry. Um, we have these generations. I'm not great at it, but I, I, there's some meaning to these terms like Gen X and millennials and everything. You know, by and large, I'll, I'll be honest, for, for 20 years, I guess I thought like the generation gap was mostly a created phenomenon to sell cheap clothing and sneakers uh, to young people telling them it's revolutionary, right? Like so many things, it's controlled opposition. That being said, in campus ministry, um, 
something, something radical happened for me after COVID. The way I liken it to is that, you know, even in our county, there was a meeting, a friend of mine told me this week about mental health and they know it's a big deal. But when I was a teenager, I'm thinking, say in college, 1988, I come home in the summer and I see Geraldo Rivera on a show called 2020. And he says like binge drinking on campus is a problem. And he was saying that, uh, you know, sometimes young people would go out and have like 12 beers. And uh, I was thinking, wow, we do that with my friends, you know, by four o'clock and we're not even thinking about it, you know, and that, (laughs) and I'm not trying to praise that and I'm not proud of it, but I'm saying that even when people are talking about in my, like a mental health problem or a loneliness problem or an anxiety problem with young people, even when we're trying to name how big it is, I don't even think we're scratching the surface. Aiden, what's your, what's your experience? Yeah. So um, COVID, so I got school when COVID just was starting. So then I would say I have 20 friends at St. Bonaventure. Let's say uh, the disease of alcoholism was just in them. Like they were going to get it eventually. It was just the bug was in them. But with the years of college and COVID, I would say that much free time, there was no organization. That number has definitely been a lot of my friends have just succumbed to that. Absolutely. And you drink and you go out and you party and you get drunk. And I'm not saying that's good or bad. You're a natural college student. Yeah. But the, the difference is COVID college was... Like a lot of us already thought college is pretty silly, but COVID college, taking online classes, online tests, it made the whole thing seem really ridiculous. And what's the point? So then people would hit the bottle pretty hard. Yeah. That's what I saw in teaching. Yeah, it was, it was, and, and I would mention it to colleagues and they all acted like nothing was wrong. I said, no, these kids are suffering and we're sitting around acting like everything's normal. So take off your mask. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think too about like the, uh, an impending sense of doom is something that I see a lot of students reporting with, you know, and I, amateur psychologist that I am, uh. and I'm not asking for like a clinical perspective from Aiden, but you know, we, and I substituted in a high school, like, but the expectations because uh, nerves are still so raw, loneliness is still so pinching people that um, we don't have many expectations. So I know in high school, you cannot do anything in class and they still kind of have to pass you. And they keep on, again, trying to bring structure back. But then there's a report that somebody attempted suicide. And I think that's true on campus too. But it leads to a sense of like open-endedness for young people that they wonder is, you know, is anything, how would you phrase it? You know, I don't even know what I'm saying. So I can tell you how an online test goes in college. It would be you take a multiple choice test on some website or something. The first question pops up, you highlight it, you copy paste, put it into a Quizlet, and then the whole test will pop up with the answers because all these books are across the board from all the colleges. So one person from a college 500 miles away will put all the answers up and then everyone in the nation uses those answers. So what it is, is there's like no standard and then no one's, no learning occurred because you could just cheat your way through it so easily. And then I kind of have a, a small theory about why they try to make college so easily. And then a lot of my younger professors, so like millennial types, I think they had such a stressful college experience and they always talk about how like, oh, we know like it's okay. These are stressful times. But I think their college experience was very much like if we don't do good here, you're not going to get a good job. You're not going to get your office job. Your whole life will be bad. Especially so, if they were pursuing jobs in academia, they knew the yeah, job process. Exactly. Yeah, oh yes, exactly. So their stress levels through their college experience was off the charts. And I think they're just projecting that onto us a lot. So then anytime there's any sense of unease in students, they'll just, oh, oh, and they have so much sympathy, but way too much sympathy, just their extreme stress during their time. So then they just have no standards. Yeah. Make it very easy. Michael. Well, I'm just, you know, 
I'm about as chill as you can get as a professor, so, which is weird because I haven't, I haven't seen any millennials teach. So I don't know if it's true. Of all, I don't think it's true of all people my age, but you know, I've, I'm, I'm like, you know how like, uh, I had a student tell me I'm like, I was the Eddie Izzard of professors. I don't like, even know who Eddie Izzard is. Who's that? He's a transvestite comedian. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know who he was either, but then yeah. I knew what he's talking about. Uh-huh. Um, kind of off the cuff, you know, or I think of myself as the Bill and Murray professor. Bill Murray. I'm just there to have fun, right? Yeah. yeah. So I, I, you know, and if it's not fun for me, it's not going to be fun for anybody else. And if I'm not enthusiastic about what we're talking about, no one else is going to be either. Yeah. So, so, but I, so I think, um, and I think the culture of academia is toxic. And I think that's what Aiden was describing. The whole culture is pretty toxic. And I try to diffuse that toxicity, but I don't know if it's, you know, I, I and I've, as I've told you before, I'm like I'm pretty sure it's going to be dead in a couple of years. Like, what do you like? Help people get concrete. Like a number. Of- I think. I think. Well, I think what happened is before COVID hit, I at all of the liberal arts colleges or most of them were on the verge of, of imploding mm-hmm. because of demographic winter and we're seeing it here. Right? Yep. Bad administrative decisions. But when COVID hit, they got flushed with COVID money from the government. Which kept them afloat for a little while, but I think it's 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 a it's a it's a zombie version of it, and I think you know, and it was because the, the place I taught was a small Catholic liberal arts college, which closed in 20, 2017. Okay, and they they were and at that time, if you would read the Chronicle of Higher Education, they were expecting that to to, to create a domino, mm-hmm. but COVID came in there with all this money and kept those places afloat for a little while. But it's not yeah. gonna, you're going to have and, like, and just demographically. Yeah. There, there is no way to keep it alive, which is why uh, college administrations have to keep coming up with these gimmicks to get kids to come into school, like start an esports team or a fishing team or whatever it happens to be. Tell me what an esports team is. Playing video games and oh, okay, gotcha, sports. gotcha. Okay, yeah, I, I, I should have figured that out. It's I couldn't believe it when I put the first step. Like, You're kidding me. This is a joke, yeah. right? <laughs> is this in the Onion? <laughs> they're gonna need. They're gonna need one one paid professional for retention per student now the way i see like talk about a growth industry aiden it would be like joining the bloated bureaucracies of a college you know it's all about student retention and 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 once you get there doing anything to keep you and those students they they give them the illusion of playing sports in college and also the illusion of a scholarship it's just to get people in the door They're, they're not getting full no one's getting a full ride right they're just getting them in there to fill the seats. And, and it's not, it's very different. When I started teaching college 20 years ago, or whatever it was, a little over 20 years ago, it was still, it was even dying then, but you had a lot more students who were actually going to college because they were interested in ID. And this is, and we're, we're going to talk about Jordan P. When I, when I first saw him, I thought he's like, you know, he's like an old school professor, <laughs> you know, that's all he is. I mean, people were getting all upset. I said, he's just doing old school professor stuff. You know, it's nothing. He's, he's interrogating assumptions. That's what you're supposed to do. Um, in a good way, but, yeah. But lately, you know, I think in the last couple, well, last five years at least, students come into college, they don't want to read books. They, they don't want to prepare. They don't, like Aiden said, they don't want to study for the test. <laughs> I mean, it's not everybody because you still, I still, and I had a couple of really good classes this last semester, but I had one, two, two sections of a freshman composition just this last year. And in the fall semester, so 25 kids in the class, and they had been cooped up from COVID for two years in high school, and they got to college, and at the college I was teaching at, there were no masks or anything. 
they went nuts with partying. No. And a couple of the seniors who I knew said, Professor Martin Reynolds, these guys are going to, I said, what do you mean? They're not, you should see the dorm, it's nuts. They're all <laughs> drunk all the time. And so I, of those two classes of 25 students each, I think each class, I maybe had six make it to the end. Wow. Which has never happened in my life. And it was not, it was, I was not the only one that was happening there. Aiden, tie some of this in if you can now uh, to, to Jordan Peterson. Like he was a phenomenon before COVID. So I'm not trying to box you in a hole to make, you know, he was, he was the phenomenon again is the way I'm thinking of it. He was speaking to predominantly young men prior to that. He's had his own journey. The world has had his own journey. Kind of lead us off. Like what was your original attraction? You know, give us a, give us like a little bit of your story oh, with well, the Jordan Peterson. Go, go ahead. Go yeah. Now, now, for, to correct me if I'm wrong, but I think he first came to international attention, or at least in the West, when he was opposing uh, the pronoun thing. Yeah, Bill C-16. Yeah, so that was a while ago, right? Yeah. And he was just, well, why? <laughs> you know, and it, which is when I was paying attention, you know, and I was like, good for you, brother. You know, and they were in his in his college, I think University of Toronto is where he was, and they were giving all kinds of trouble about it. And I was like, you stick to your guns, brother. Yeah, all right. Good for you, because because he, he was calling in and he wasn't going to play a, a stupid game for the for the sake of getting along, right? So this is at the beginning of the woke war. Uh, when you when you say was it 2016? Is that what you said? That's my guess. What are you thinking? Yeah, it was mid 2016. Good God, six years ago. Yeah, that's when I met you, Mike. Yeah, how about that? We could have talked about it that first uh, night did. we went swimming in your pond. So yeah, what was your story then? Um, I guess I'll do a little boot analogy, uh, generation wise to get the scene set so i would say like uh, the boomer generation uh they know exactly how they how they want to cook so they cook they boil everything and it's no it's just salt and pepper right so then millennials come in they get raised by boomers and then their whole thought process there's other ways of cooking there's other there's indian there's chinese there's all this so this whole thing is trying to break the culture bound certainty of the boomers what peterson's trying to do is come around and see what's common with all these cultures that produces, let's say, a good cook. You ask the millennial, they'll say, there's no such thing, right? All the relatives are most modern, some kind of thing. Their answer is just, there's just not better ways. There's just different. I would say that's a lot, a big reflection of coming away from the boomers type of, so us young people. Um, would you say generation Z or how do you yeah, describe yourself? Okay. So then we are getting raised by these millennials types. And their whole thing is they'll never tell you how to cook, right? And when I'm using cook as an example of metaphor for like acting, how to think, everything. But since they're all most obsessed with saying, oh, everything's relative, there's different. And there's some good utility. But us young people are just trying, are very interested in like what's in common with all these different types of ways. And then we're trying to say, maybe all these cultures, they use seasoning. So like the all the geese good cooks use seasoning. And that's kind of, so that's the way of saying, just trying to find actually how to act. He had the balls to say, this is maybe how you should, you treat your life. No one had the courage to do that because everything was like too. What do you want to do? How does that make you feel? Exactly. <laughs> and that spoke to you, you were saying? Yeah, so. Like what part of it? I mean. The, the, I think that one of the main parts that like some of the the, uh, the videos got him very famous were these trigger videos. And then us young people be watching. Why are these people freaking out about this old man, he's 50, saying these ideas. And then these millennials would get triggered. And then I think we were very interested in that triggered phenomenon and what it indicated. And I think for me, it indicates that they have their strict ideology. And if that ideology is poked at any area, they trigger. I think we weren't too interested in the po politics side of it. 
we would just like to laugh at the trigger videos. Like, why do these people care so much? <laughs> I guess that's true. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. So then we would just be confused. And then obviously Peterson ends his theory with like these ideological certainty. Yeah. But say more about that. You say he, he circles back around to becoming in his, the, this phenomenon. He's, he, has he betrayed himself, are you insinuating or what? That he has his own certainties now? Um, yeah, I would say he's definitely has his own, he's falling in a certain direction, but I think the main thing that us young people caught on to was he was just going in these interviews, saying these simple things, and then they would get huge reactions. The most famous one being the Kathy Newman interview. And then we were just watching from the outside saying, why are the people care so much about what this guy's saying? And I think it indicated that we were just really interested in the whole ideological. Yeah, I, I tend to think when I... I think I introduced his name to you because some students would come into my office, really intelligent. Again, when Aiden says my generation, I'm not going to pigeonhole you, but I think we got to talk about like genders and how many, you know, it's mostly a male phenomenon, but we'll come back to that. But the, uh, my experience was some really intelligent young men. Again, I wouldn't say they were looking for certainty, but they were looking for somebody who believed in something. I'll tell you a story that we once hear it at a state university as a Catholic campus minister, I'm quite often involved in these kind of, uh, oh, softball panels, Michael, you know them. Like they, they call the Catholic, the Jew, and the Muslim guy together. And they say like, what do you guys think about animals? It's, a, it's we, like a we bad all, joke. A Catholic, <laughs> a Jew, and a Muslim walking to the university, right? Yeah, and they get us all, the state, you know, the state, the, whoever's hosting the panel will get us all to admit that we think kittens is bad. And there's probably some evidence in our tradition to do that. But one was, uh, one was on sharing your stories, like from a tradition. And so... A Jewish guy shared a wonderful story from, oh, Hasidic literature, maybe something from Mountain Boober. And then um, we had a Muslim uh, gentleman share a story. And then I wasn't the Christian representative. It was a Mennonite. And the Mennonite got up at this panel and he said, I got a story. It's called the Bible. And it says, unless you accept Jesus Christ as your savior, you got big problems. And that's not the way I would tell the tale. But the (laughs) the board of the Interface Center what just went into damage control, right? They were worried about everybody, the young people just getting offended. And they were probably going to get triggered and cry. But every single young person there, I don't think any agreed with him, but they all loved the guy for speaking his mind, right? Yeah. They it loved was, him yeah. and they didn't need anybody to console them. They go, this guy, he strikes me as maybe a whack job or I kind of like him or it's not really where I'm at. But they loved the fact, they said, that guy's boss. And that reminded me of the Jordan Peterson phenomenon. you got a guy who spoke his mind, he never kind of shut up. And he was quite often the brightest person in the room. Then this whole thing kind of mushroomed. I don't know. That's what I saw from my but, Let me ask you this, Aiden. Yeah. So my son, Aiden, who is, he's 21. What are you, 22? He's 21? 22. 22. He's 21. And he, uh, this is, he moved out of the house a few years ago, but he was still at home then. Maybe he was a senior in high school, a junior. And he started checking into these Jordan Peterson videos. And he was watching a lot of Joe Rogan. And, and he's a pretty smart kid. And, it seemed to me when he, because I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't been paying a whole lot of attention to, to Jordan Peterson. I mean, once in a while, would something would come up, I'd watch him. I mean, today, there's a clip, I'll, I'll watch it, but I'm not following him or anything, right? And what, what struck me with my son is that he was just interested to hear people talking about the value of ID, right? And about the, you know, the, and, I, and what I've seen Peterson, I think where he's strongest, and, and, and he's, 
authoritative even is when he's talking about psychology when he's talking about what men do and why they do it what women do and why they do this and what they seek for and you know and it's compelling and it's it, it, you know you hear it and go oh, it makes perfect sense right it's it's not esoteric or anything very simple but my son was really interested in both joe rogan and in his guest and in peterson because they're talking about ideas as if they mattered yeah i think a uh key connection between the whole Joe Rogan and the Jordan Peterson phenomenon would be they both speak their minds. So there's no hiding behind any thoughts and they take, both take pride in just speaking their. So the biggest insult in our, my generation, Gen Z, would be calling someone fake. And that I would say that's the person just talking behind their persona and just trying to make, trying to use their words, not just express what they feel, but just other motives behind it. Mm -hmm. And both Peterson and Rogan Clearly, they're motivated by interest, and they're just more curious than anything. And they'll just talk about with about ideas with an actual interest, not just like, talk over somebody. Is, that's what the academic project used to be about. Yeah, <laughs> it did. It did. And it, before it became about politics, it was about exploring ideas, which is why I got into it. But uh, <laughs> but that's really, yeah. seriously. That's, that's you. That's you once said something that I found interesting, Aiden, was that uh, that if you look at Joe Rogan, you know, to shift over to him a little bit that when you talk about things that work or authenticity, that you know they wonder why this commentator on MMA fighting made it for real, but that his, his two professions, well, you say it, Aiden, his two professions, you know, what's unique, how does, how does stand-up comedy and, um, and multiple martial arts fighting lead him to be a, a really damn good interviewer? Yeah, so I think if you're a stand-up comic, you make a bunch of jokes, and then you go to the comedy club to test them out, but all the jokes you bring, you obviously you think they're all individually funny, but when you bring them to the comedy club, you get rid of at least 75% of them because they didn't work. And then if you follow that process for 20 years, eventually you start to understand what makes the broadest amount of people just laugh and like an instinctual laugh. So you know there's actually something behind it. And I think Joe Rogan following that is very, it's analogous to just following practical insights. And then his other thing is he's an MMA fighter uh, commentator and MMA uh, videos, they get the most amount of views from us younger kids sports-wise. And it's just, it's hard to think of something more practical in real life than like, the knowledge of self-defense. So with both those factors, he's just a normal dude talking about interesting ideas. And that just got us very interested. It so seems like, Michael, isn't that something yeah. like it's the real, it's the real yeah, we keep on talking. And, and both, you know, and that's the thing, you know, what I what I'm interested in, I've always been in, is just hearing these other ideas. You know, I want to you know I want to know what's out there, right? Want to know the 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 limits of human experience and, and thought process. And those two guys, for example, uh, they they kind of break out of that uh, restriction that we have in our culture about you can't talk about. Oh yeah, you can't talk about that, right? All that not just political correctness, but all 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 that stuff that you're not that are in doubt taboo. And they're, and they're like, well, why are they taboo? And, and I think you see there are several figures uh, in our culture who I think uh, encapsulate that or embody that. Camille Paglia, for instance. Yeah. Do you know that name, Aiden? Yeah. Yeah. She had a great discussion with Jordan Peterson maybe four years ago. I mean, they're both really smart people, and it's really nice to hear really smart people talk, even if you don't agree with them, right? And so Camille Pali, I've been following her for, gosh, 15, 20 years. Never totally agree with her, but I'd love to watch her think. Lo love to watch her tease out some ideas. That's exactly where I am. The intelligent yeah. person, 
you know, and I can, re- I can respect that. Even uh, in journalism, like people like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald, who push against the, you know, the, the egregore of the journalistic mind, you know, that, that just says you have to walk in lockstep with everybody. And they, then they questioned the narrative. So that, that's, to me, that's refreshing. And not only is it refreshing, it's desperately needed more than ever. And that's the weird thing is, in most of my career as a teacher, and back when I was a student, those things were assumed that you had this marketplace of ideas where you, you feel free to discuss, you know, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice or whatever you happen to be, right? You know, all these different ideas, but you, but you feel, uh, maybe not accepted, but feel that it's all right to talk about in public. And now we live in a culture that says it's not to talk about certain. And we need those kinds of voices. We're pushing against that because it's really totalitarian. Now, you've told the story, Michael, of how like the same things you and Bonnie used to believe being like anti-big corp, anti-big pharma, anti-war, we're liberal and now they're conservative. The same thing with, you know, Glenn Greenwald. These guys are saying like, I'm against, I want, and they, they also make the point that like journalists now, they all just go they're not drawn from the opposition. They're just drawn from the most elites, you know, and that, um, but it's really, and it's so, Aiden, but you feel hopeful. So I'm, I'm going to go back to something I said before, because I think it's really important. When you say my generation, like some of the stuff we're talking about, if it's true, you know, that Joe Rogan, and we know his video views are huge. Are they enough to make a dent? Or is it still like, let's be honest, like, um, is this mental health thing we began with that leads people to feel futile? Is, is that going to get the upper hand? Do you think there's hope? Like, how would you, what's the state of the art in the battlefield right now? I think right now, a lot of young people are losing faith in almost all institutions, not just academia. So are old people. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good and very good. <laughs> but it's maybe a start in academia. So we've seen like, oh, this college thing, it's not really working for me. And then we're seeing that this whole government thing, there's the two years of COVID, two years of lockdown, people started questioning a lot of things. And I think right now that questioning brings a lot of despair because lost faith in a lot of things that you have a lot of trust in. I think that brings inevitable despair and sadness, but I think that also for change, hopefully it will come with hope. I'm not big on voting, Michael, but I told him again, like, you know, if your generation did vote, because that generation is not voting at historic proportions because they're so disengaged. But the fact that again, Joe Rogan had Tulsi Gabbard on so much, you know, they could make an impact. You know, that they're they're tuning into things that don't fit our political categories. But you were going to say something, Michael, but Aiden, don't you're not trying to avoid the question. When you say your generation, how much do you think you're speaking for? It seems to me that I, I feel some of the same thing and see it at the campus I'm at. But still, a lot of people, a huge amount, may I think to their own detriment because it makes them tell themselves lies, is just still uh, drinking the Kool-Aid on everything. Yes, there's definitely a huge segment that still has their blinders up. And they still want to fix themselves that everything's all right. Everything is still sturdy and we're not in shifting sand. But I think compared to, at least in my part of my life, this is the time period where there's the most amount of people who are like questioning most things. I and, agree with that. And I would say that maybe it started in 2006 with Rogan and Jordan Peterson, because they were definitely like Rogan got famous for just conspiracy things. And then we were just like, oh, like, at least it's different. It's something new, so it's at least interesting. It wasn't just the same exact news story over and over again each each night. So that piqued our interest. And then Peterson was just talking about just random psychological things. Like, oh, that's interesting. Just different. So what I was going to say is, um, you know, I, I've been working with young people most of my life, <laughs> most of my adult life. And what I what I I was I was kind of really worried about the younger generation. Plus, I've seen 
the effects of this, and it's not COVID, of the way people responded to on my own kids, right? I think it's traumatized with, and no one wants to admit they've been traumatized. So, so I know it's a lot of people have been traumatized, but if you have been, we all have been traumatized, <laughs> right? And my, I have a two girl, my two girls uh, that are home, still home are 19 and 17. I know it's been rough on them, you know? My my two thir- my thirteen and eleven year old sons they they're, they're since they're homeschooled too they're kind of protected from it somewhat but my twenty two year old all the other my my twenty five year old daughter it was tr- in fact she was so depressed she was anticipating the end of the world you know a couple of years ago because she just said there's no hope you know and I kept trying it's gonna it'll get better and and I see this and I saw it in not only my children and my students but I saw it in my contemporaries I see it everywhere. Right, so many of my contemporaries, um, my good friends, all of a sudden were having struggles with alcohol, and I know why. It's because because they're good people and they're dealing with a sick society. That's why they're not they're not sick. The world is right. Um, but what I was going to say, so I was I was encouraged this last of the winter or spring um, teaching a class on romanticism. It was all women in the class. Most of them are junior, and it was the first time in a long time where I got a class to open up as a group and talk about the literature we were talking about and also about talking about what's going on with their lives in relationship to them. And they were saying, similar to what you were saying, you know, I said, you know, we just realized that everything's bullshit, you know, and that all this stuff we went through, it's not worth it. So now we want to worry about what's really important. And they would say, that's why I love this class because the romantics talk, talk about what's really important, love between people, right? Communicating community, our relationship to nature and our relationship to yeah. God, all these things that impart meaning to life. And so, and so, but I'm sure they're not the majority, but I know it's out there and I can see it in you too, Aiden, right? So, you know, it's out there. So, so there is hope, but what, I mean, I really think what we've been through for the last couple of years is comparable to what they went through in Europe before too. I do too. And people were saying, it's not, you know, it's just as bad. It's just as bad. It's like, yeah. you know, just as with like World War II with all the devastation and the Holocaust and all the other stuff and all the totalitarianism, we're going through the same thing now. Yeah. I don't know if many young women, and I, it's hard to qualify because I almost think it's like, it's a vast majority of young women who in college last year, if you said maybe 10 years ago, there was a poll that's on any given week, uh, fully 38% of students felt hopeless. And we, the college administration is saying, what's going on? I would say last year, Aiden, you give me a percentage you would guess, but let's use, use women thought about killing themselves. Could you give a guess to that? I would say it's like 80%. It would be a random. T- no, it would the be the random. Amount of girls, the amount of girls that can't go more than two hours without listening to music, so like to actually feel some real meaning, to that's without like thinking dark, dark thoughts, that's almost all of them. You phrase it so much better than I do. Yeah. No, that's a that's a more <laughs> illustrative example. How about... Uh, Related to that, I just want to get a sense. I, I hope this doesn't draw us away, but I, I wanted to ask you, like, again, when I said, like, alcohol, what we're doing, and you said, like, you know, the problem drinking, TikTok, you know, how much? Like, so I would say, you know, I've raised four kids. Aiden's on his phone a fair amount. I have no idea. But um, if we said, oh, today's young generation is watching TikTok for, like, two hours a day, like, wh- how would you describe that phenomenon? What's it doing to attention spans? And this is not going to be lecturing from one generation to another one saying, oh, they have short attention spans. But is it a real crisis? Like how much and what's it doing? Yeah. So I think that affects people much younger than me. So like people who are 14, 12, 
Um, my sister, actually, she's teaching uh, seventh grade Spanish. She has trouble getting them to get through a full TV show because now they're used to 20 second videos. And then after that 20 second video, they lose interest and they have to switch. And it's automatic engagement and constant activity. So it's a very good way to just suck into it and ignore other things. But yeah, that's a lot of things. I also add yeah. one more thing about my generation. Uh, our two favorite shows are The Office and Parks and Rec. And The Office, one of the key themes, is like the mundane life of office life. And we, everyone my age has seen that whole series, which is eight seasons four times in a row. And so the idea of like going to college for four years just to do that, I think that's where a lot of the hopelessness comes from because we've already watched it. See like, oh, I'm going to be a paper salesman. Like, what is there to that? And I think we've watched so much TV on like this and that. So then the idea of going to do that, knowing that it's already watched on, makes us feel a lot, of, a lot of. How about this? Let's go, let's tie back into Jordan Peterson. I, it's conceivable now, like I, correct me the telling of the tale, but I think we all agreed that um, we saw him doing neat things. You know, uh, Michael, you were on Jonathan Pajot's um, a podcast a while ago, or no, you know what it was, was uh, last week. Uh, Michelle was saying that like, you know, when Jordan Peterson is talking about personality and things, he just, it's just so solid, young and all this stuff, but he's also a culture warrior. And Michael, Michelle Baywins wasn't so impressed with that. And um, it seems to me, Aiden, that like an outsider who's paid pretty close attention to it, but not close enough, that you have this great professor using Dostoevsky, young, doing what, you know, Michael, you and I would have died for to be in that class. Yeah. And then he gets drawn into the culture wars. He still traverses both worlds, but like a lab rat, he's getting rewarded for the culture wars piece with likes and so forth. And you said, and that was illustrative to me, that people disliked his own. You know, again, I said, even what I watched, right or wrong, he was the brightest person in the room and people would come in to attack him and he'd come out victorious. Yeah. He has, we just I would heard never he want to debate him. <laughs> no, no, no. But we just, uh, he signed up, uh, tell me if it's the right thing, but he signed up with the Daily Caller and it seems to me you no, could say he's going to be a Ben. What? Yeah, he's going to yeah. be a Ben Shapiro shill or something. Where, where is it at? How did he get there? Is this the totality of who he is? What are we to look for? What happened? Do a little bit with that, and then Michael and I will kind of interrogate. Yeah. So he's asked himself many times if he ever wanted to have a political career, and he always said when it came down to it, no. And he said, I'm not playing that game. I'm playing that psychological or maybe perhaps the theological. So then. He has thought about actually running for office in Canada, but he never did. And then he just focused on his career as an academic. And his whole theory maps me one second. The book nobody read. We got a great anecdote about that, Michael, but for yeah. later. <laughs> Go ahead. But that, it's a huge, massive theory. It's a theory of everything. And he spent his whole life on it. And then in that theory, there's a small segment where he talks about politics and how so he would say like he, when he talks about postmodernism, he connects that to deep, deep theological themes. So when he's like talking politics, if you know where he's coming from, it's he thinks where they're coming from is like very dark and nefarious. So that's how he responds. And then most people can't see the context of where he's coming from. So then they see just as a political figure or culture warrior. But as you said, he's definitely like one side of the spectrum has tried to take him down for six years straight. And he's had, he's had depression his whole life. And so that's definitely been hard on him. Yeah. And then there's this other side, this spiritual types who might be equally ideologically possessed as because they're just, they're both sides are both really interested in having a certainty and saying, oh, my side is right. The other side's wrong. And that makes me, so sadly, he is getting positive feedback from one of those sides. And I do think it's shifting his perspective because in maps meaning, 
that his first book, see that it's very equal. It just talks about how you need, describes how you need the left and the right. And he does it from psychological levels, theological levels, from all these different levels. But he's definitely only had support from one side of the spectrum. And I do think that has skewed his view and direction, perhaps negatively. What do you think, Michael? <clears throat> well, um, well, I, I, when I saw that he, he took that gig, you know, my, my immediate thought is, well, well, he doesn't have his university gig anymore. He needs a job, which is <laughs> 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 very pragmatic. Now, I don't know if he does or not. I don't know how much. He, he probably makes a lot, lot more from his books than I make from mine. Uh, so but, much money. But he's really, you know, you mentioned Peugeot, but also uh, probably not as well known, but a big figure is John Verveke, who yep. was a cognitive scientist who, at Peterson's old university in Toronto. And he's got this youtube uh channel called on the meaning the meaning crisis because he knows i mean as a cognitive scientist he sees that the crisis we're in as a culture is a crisis of meaning and i think peterson was definitely speaking that in his in his work and i think that's what pajot is trying to do and i'm trying to do too in my work right um but i uh what's what's interesting to me that you mentioned aiden and i that really kind of perplexes me um is the vitriol that has been thrown at this guy from places where I didn't expect it. For instance, from there are a lot of Catholic intellectuals. Mike, you know them like like uh, <laughs> Sam, Sam Rocha, that is how yeah. it's, or even Artur Sebastian Rossman. A lot of people just hate this guy. And I couldn't figure out why they hate him so much. Even uh I can't remember his name. Uh a lot of people I I, I know, I, I didn't think of myself as friends with them, and certainly a colleague. But they hate this guy, and they spent they spent so much time writing vitriolic blog posts or essays about Jordan Peterson. And my initial thought, and I, I'm going to stick by this, was this, and this is a few years ago when he first came to prominence, is that there was, if you know anything about academia, it's the most envious profession on earth, oh, yeah. and there's nothing academics hate worse than somebody getting more attention than they're getting. <laughs> so I think part of it was that, but I, I don't understand. I, and so I think what happened is there was a kind of um, mimesis going on. They were, they were imitating each other's behaviors in, in turning uh, Peterson into a scapegoat because I couldn't figure it out. It didn't make any sense. He did, right, what, a lot of what he was saying, I thought, not all, but a lot of it was very compatible with the Catholic approach to things. You know, not entirely, but he's not a Catholic, you know? I mean, there are other people you could complain about. I think his, uh, from what I can tell, his reading of postmodern philosophy, in particular of Derrida, is a little superficial. And so, Derrida, for instance, uh, in his early career, very different person than he was in his later career, which, which as far as I'm concerned, was a negative in his last part of his career. Um, but, but there is, and he's been dealing with this for probably 30 years as an academic, a lot of people in academia adopt this kind of superficial postmodern pose, which now has met a, kind of transmogrified into wokeness, yeah. which has nothing to do with these, you know, like if you think about uh, thinkers like uh, Yulia Kristeva or Derrida, whom I mentioned, or Manuel Levinas, really great thinkers, really great thinkers. I don't always agree with them, but you can't help but admire the way they think. Um, but there's a lot of posers in academia who have a superficial understanding of all those people, and they turned uh, deconstruction into a kind of adolescent. Oh yeah, really? How do you know? You know. So <laughs> it, it's it, it's and it's very adolescent. And in fact, I wrote an essay about it. Gosh, 2005 maybe, which uh, I, I took those guys on. It was, uh, it was called "Taking on Being: 
because because they were uh, I was taking on that that idea too because I didn't I saw that they were saying there was no meaning there was nothing you know what I mean that all and we can see uh, um, Judith Butler who I think is the worst thing that ever happened to planet Earth um, you know her ideas kind of percolated into academia into gender studies classes and people have such a superficial under she's not a great thinker in the first place but they they take a uh, a kind of a superficial understanding of her and then gender is fluid right and then now you have drag queen um, story hours and ch and children going to drag shows with their parents that all stems from judy butler so jordan peterson has a point but there's more to that that postmodern picture than than he seems to be aware of what do you think mike yeah and that you know i think that this is my wife when when i told her uh shout out to amy uh when I told her Aiden was going to be with us today, she goes, you guys can like argue, you know, cause I don't know about you and your sons. Aiden and I can fall in. We get along famously well, uh, but we can fall into the kind of the same uh, worn things, but it would be this, this deal because again, our common friend Guido Preparata, his book, the ideology of tyranny would kind of say the same thing about this culture warrior aspect of, um, of Jordan Peterson, you know, uh, Guido's, you know, in short, and he's not the only one saying this anymore, but I think he said it first. And I think he said it depth. It's very impressive because his knowledge of Foucault and others is magisterial. You know, And uh, he's, he can never be accused of not reading, having read all of that stuff in depth. And he puts a lot on uh, Foucault's predecessor, George Bataille. Point being that again, a preparata sees a lot of this stuff as controlled opposition, right? That it's a conservative phenomenon, that the real progressive issues of class and, uh, and uh, specifically class, but others, war that have been lost in this, that the elites are laughing all the way to the bank, that, you know, that here at a state university, Literally. we have radicals. Yeah. yeah. We have radicals who never question the nexus between like our, our supposedly hip English professor who uses the word fuck a lot, drives a sob, and poses a radical, <laughs> but it's actually super establishment, right? And there's, you know, yeah. yeah, and she's using this argo that she might have learned at Harvard, but it's second rate here at my university. And we don't question the nexus between the Ivies and say uh, the government like they did in the 60s, you know, and the, all these things that show this. So Aiden and I have kind of like taken these two things, you know, the culture warrior piece, and sometimes we do end at dead ends. Yesterday, we were talking in the kitchen and, um, and he wondered, like, yeah, could you see Jordan Peterson as controlled opposition in this new manifestation as a guy on Daily Caller? And I would say, sure, at least that that that's an interesting thing to talk about. Is he useful now if he's been reduced to this posture of culture warrior, uh, just being anti-leftist? You know, the enemy is cultural Marxism. Remember when Guido said the other week that Marx was controlled opposition? Yeah. You know, but uh, that's so, an interesting... So all the Marxists I ever worked with, I thought they were huge phonies. Yeah. You know, yeah. Because they all, and as Guido agreed, you know, they all had absolute contempt for the working class. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was not even, they didn't even try to hide it. No, no, no. It's still there. It's still there. No. Aiden, what do you think about all this? So, what Peter, And is there hope for him if he has been reduced? Go ahead. So technically the postmodernists and Peterson, they have the same enemy, which would be the the Sam Harris or the Richard Dawkins types, the object like the materialist. Why Peterson has such a problem with the postmoderns is he thinks he has the to solve the whole modernity question. What he thinks the postmoderns have done, they just say, oh, everything's socially constructed. It's all based off power. And they simplified it to the power thing for a very specific. And he says he connects that very directly to 
Marxism and saying, oh, just as Marx said, history is just class warfare. It's all struggle. It's only power. He thinks what happens with like the Derrida and the Foucault types was since they couldn't be Marxist anymore after, let's say, Alexander Solzhenitsyn's book came out and it seemed like, oh, wait, these, these experiments are not working. What he thinks he did, what they did was instead of playing class struggle between two groups, which I think is a truer story than the postmodern, they just went groups in power. So it's the same, mm -hmm. oh, power is the only thing and it's groups fighting with each other. He just thinks it's the same exact story, just hidden. So, and also another reason he's so vehemently opposed against these postmoderns is his whole book maps meaning is answering their question, which they say is unanswerable saying, yeah. Say more about that. I didn't understand your last sentence. They sure. answer a question. So, they would say like, right, the classic postmodern thing is, oh, it's impossible to derive a canonical interpretation of text being infinite variety. That's and right. then he says, like, he, instead of, he says that's actually true. And then he'll describe how that same uh, dilemma popped up in the AI field. So the AI researchers, researchers, when they try to make these robots, they try to design them as, okay, have them sense the objective outside world and then act. And then it turned out that was impossible because the objective outside world was impossible to perceive at because we needed as humans 3.5 billion years of evolution to build up our visual systems to handle it but these robots couldn't do it so then they usually saw crazy randomness so then that's a way of saying the postmodernism way was correct but what he's done and try to do is answer the solve that problem so then one way of maybe describing would um like the moral relativists would say all cultures are different they're all different games and then Peterson would say, yes, they're all different games. But then he would just try to describe what's in common with the word game. So then he would say, oh, all games have a form. They all have a knowledge structure. And then can, when he's trying to describe the base elements of the story. So, yeah. Interesting. But, and so we've, he and I have kind of barked up this tree before too, Michael. And I was, I, it's not like I'm telling him, but like, yeah, his enemy is like Sam Harrison, Richard Dawkins. And I wonder if like this and some of that cultural Marxism stuff, if, you know, it, those are bigger phenomenon in the universities, they are in other places. Like Richard Dawkins, in my field of kind no. of theology, he was seen as a cartoon character pretty early or no? Nobody cares about those. Yeah. That I know. How do you I think mean, he got maybe obsessed 10 with years yeah. ago, maybe 10 years ago, there was some cachet there. And they were, they were on, on, on college campuses with young men. I'll grant you that, Aiden, that like Richard Dawkins was something of a big guy, a touchstone for cosplay, for atheist cosplay, you know, um, or scientific uh, faith is stupid, kind of like a pose, a posture. But, well, uh, I, but I think that they're, they're symptomatic of a bigger problem. And that bigger problem, and this is why when I wrote the submerged reality, it's part of what impelled me to write it, is that uh, there's a, there, there was and there is a crisis about meaning and about the value of the world and about the meaning of the world. What does the world mean anything? And, and Dawkins and those guys were saying, no, it doesn't. And people were, I, I think young people were attracted, or even older people were attracted to those ideas because they, they felt betrayed by religion. They felt betrayed by religion, which told, which told them there was meaning in the world. And they, they were increasingly seeing, you know, that the religious leaders were frauds, if not, you know, pedophiles, and which should cause you to, to, to think about things for a minute, right? Which, you know, a lot, but a lot of people don't want to think about that. My, my mother, one of the most notorious uh, pederasts in the Catholic Church, the American Catholic Church in the 70s was our parish priest. Wow. And we told my mom, I was, uh, I was an altar boy. I was, but this is after I had graduated from Alter Boy. I was in high school. But my friend worked at the rectory 
And the priest said, you want to come up and give me a massage? And the guy quit his job that day at the rectory. He lived next door to the rectory. Too. And we told my mom. And my mother said, no, that, she's a beast. You, no, that, you can't. No, Michael, yeah. no. How dare you say that about a priest? 20 years ago, later, there was a story in the Michigan Catholic about him going up the river for, for and he was the one who violated that uh, sportscaster. I can't remember. Hmm. And, and my mom says, did you see this in the Michigan Catholic? I said, mom, I told you about that 20 years ago. Yeah. I couldn't believe it though, because he was a priest. But, and, and that's the thing is, we have these institutions, as, as you started off talking about, that have betrayed us. All of them have betrayed us, and we can't have faith in them. And for a while there, we had the Sam Harris's and Richard Dawkins saying, yeah, because there is nothing <laughs> That's a good take. Right? Oh, yeah, trust yeah, the yeah, science. Right. Trust yeah. the science. But we all know, and now we trusted the science over the last two years. Look what they, where that got us, right? So, and that's why I think those women in that class was teaching, yes, this is about the stuff we want to know, talk about, and know about, because it's about meaning. You know, it's about why are we here? I mean, the big questions, right? The big philosophical questions. Why are we here? What's the purpose of life? Is yeah. there is there a God? You know, what's the meaning of nature? I mean, all those kinds of things are are supremely important. And and it's kind of we're we're living in an interesting time in history where all those other you can call them traditional or institutional. Uh, centers for for that kind of those kinds of answers are falling apart rapidly so where where is what does that leave us that's that's i think that's the question we're, we're heading to Hayden. i'll say something about peterson's motivation um so what he thinks is currently happening in our culture he would say the newtonian worldview has gripped our consciousness and that's why we're so we think so material what he's trying to do with maps and meaning and a lot of his other work he's trying to use darwin and crush the Newtonian worldview that the most real thing is the atom. So then a common thing he brings up Dawkins is, is that he likes to make fun of Dawkins' idea of meme because the meme is like right, a cultural idea that can propagate down the generations like a gene would. But Dawkins would never define what a meme is because if he did define what a meme is, this is what Peter said, you would immediately jump into the world of Jung because then you turn into a biological archetype. But Jung and the Sam Harris types, they can't admit that because that would bring in these roots that would bring in conscious materialistic worldview so he would say hey you Dawkins Sam Harris types you're not Darwinians you're Newtonian Enlightenment guys you're just pure rationalists yep and he's trying to use this a, Dar uh, a very Darwinian biological theory which is maps meaning to crush this materialistic worldview that has our whole culture grip. Yep. and yeah and he's trying to fight science with science and so a lot of people hear a lot of science in him and they think he's just another Dawkins type. But if you know what he's about, he's trying to break the whole th the divide that there's something as subject and objective world. So then let's say the postmodernist types that he's very against, they say, yeah, they agree with that bifurcation. They say, okay, subjectivity is the only thing that's real. And then there's everyone's different. So there's a lot of truth. And then the other type of thinking, the objective Sam Harris types is that there's only truth in the objective. But his main mission as an academic is to split that bifurcation and say, oh, maybe the most important thing, most real thing is lived experience, which is the combination of subject and object. Lived experience. And, yeah. But also, and look at how close he gets to religion. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, he's with this attraction he has for Christ, you know. So, and, and I, you can't, and this, you look at the history of phenomenology, and, I, and, and there's certainly a bit of that. The history of phenomenology was all these German intellectual and French intellectuals who were studying phenomena, right? 
as it is, right? Husserl, return to the things themselves. So they return to the things themselves. And what happens? A whole bunch of them have these religious experiences as the things themselves reveal themselves. And they not only do they reveal themselves, they reveal something behind them. So Edith Stein, Heidegger, you know, Husserl, they, so many of them have these religious convergences, which, which is born directly from, from this experience of the scientific, right? If you, so if you do science the proper way, which is phenomenologically, and let things disclose themselves rather than the kind of Baconian... Put them on the rack. Cartesian, and uh, yeah, the, the, the torture chamber, the empirical dogmatic torture chamber, mechanical dogmatic torture chamber of Goethe. You don't do that. And you let the things speak their own language to you and you have to learn their language. It's a different experience. And that's why I wrote in Transfiguration, that chapter on science, because if we had this kind of science, we would have a different kind of world. That yeah, and I think it's a missing link for Peterson that like, you'd almost have to say that he could use, he could certainly use the word, it seems to me, Goethean science. He could. Meaningfully in a sentence. And he's, he's done his homework with Jung better than anybody else. You know, yeah, Aiden, so. he wants to go to clinical psych for grad school. There's very few grad schools that even touch Jung anymore. I was you stoked know? when when he came out on the scene, he was, he was doing Jung. I'm like, yeah, about time somebody did some Jung. I haven't heard this in a long time. Yeah. What, what's your response to that, Aiden? I, Michael's saying something that I would yeah. say too, but he's saying it really good. So a big part of his book, Maps of Meaning, is trying to put more scientific grounding behind Young's statement. So he would say like in the scientific community, they can just like push Young away because, oh, he's a mystic, some crazy just guy. There's no science behind his theories. What Peterson has tried to do with rigorous effort is to pin Young's idea right down to like brain physiology. So instead of saying, oh, the domain of order, Peterson says, oh, look, that's the left hemisphere. And then he just throws it on there. And then, oh, the domain of chaos, which is a Young term. He just throws that on the right hemisphere. So what he's trying to do is nail Young's ideas to empirical, to, to empirical biological. Like what he's trying to do really is use his biological theory to overthrow the physics Newtonian theory of science that's currently controlling pretty much everything. But so here, he, here's the thing. I mean, so because I have been a long time fan of you. In fact, when Mary Grove's College closed, when they were selling the library for 10 cents a copy, one of the things I made sure to get was the collector works of Carl Jung. <laughs> got 25, 20 volumes for two bucks. Good for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's not going to happen again in my lifetime. But anyway, if you look at that generation of psychoanalysts, right, even Freud. So Freud, Jung, Eric Neumann, who I know is a big fan of Eric Neumann, um, Adler, all the, the classic uh, mid-20th century psychoanalysts, they wrote beautifully. Even Freud. I mean, Freud, I, I, I don't have a lot of agreement, but God, he's a great writer. Um, it's interesting, but now people in those domains, in that, those fields, those domains, they, they try to write like scientists, yeah. as if it's science. It's not I mean, I think We can endlessly qualify that. I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. There's a scientific application. I mean, you can probably use brain science, but psychoanalysis is much closer to philosophy, you know, and counsel, counseling is much closer to philosophy or ther- theology or campus ministry mm-hmm. than it is to chemistry or biology, even though chemistry and biology certainly figure into our, our mood and other things, right? You, the body and the spirit work together. But, and even political science has been turned into science and not uh, one of the humanities, right? Which is, I think, the probably the big, biggest crisis we have right now in colleges and universities is, is the crisis of the humanities. The humanities are going to be gone 
digital humanities are going to save the day, Michael Martin. They're all going to be gone. And <laughs> all you're going to have in college and university is going to be engineering, medicine, and physics, right? You don't think counting the number of times that like uh, uh, obscure poet A used the word daffodil is going well, to like, save the, if you, if you, So you go back to like the 1960s and 70s with literary criticism. Literary criticism was filled, filled with charts and that kind of bean counting, right? Yeah. And they were trying to, to turn literary criticism into a science as well. Insane, you know, which is, but, but, you, but you can see that's because science was in ascendance and we all want to go with where the cool kids are, right? But it, is, <laughs> it didn't happen. It didn't happen. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, Aiden, like Michael and I will beat up. I, th- I can speak for myself. I tend to use science in the way Blake did, where I don't like, I always think of Bishop Barron or Catholics, they use scientists, you know, but it, it's such a dominant worldview and so forth. And Jordan Peterson is somewhat still kind of beholden to it. You would say like, he just, he got caught in like, uh, you know, kind of unpacking and opening science up to phenomenology from science, you know, uh, say a little bit more about that. And as our time starts to draw to a close too, I want one anecdote that I'll share and then bring us to that. And then even dovetail, Mike interrupt at any time, we're in no rush. But also I want to get, uh, even if it's, even if it feels rushed, we want to end with Jordan Peterson and some crazy connection to perishable currency. But the anecdote <laughs> that we both have about um, Peterson is that like the seminal book, and I can't recommend it highly enough. I, you won't be able to get through the whole thing. It reminds me of some of the, the good Joseph Campbell, where he was, you know, just surveying all of world literature, looking for archetypes and so forth. You know, and everybody's read A Hero with a Thousand Faces. Peterson, something like that. But Mats of Meaning was his, you know, this heavy thing. And he wanted to get it all down. But Aiden has told me that the last, say, 44 pages, the last chapter, is gold. And it is, Michael. It's gold. So if you can get a copy. But it's all about alchemy. And uh, it's regeneration stuff inside out and illuminating. The thing that's happened, though, is uh, as an editor, Michael, there's about 700 typos in that chapter, meaning uh, meaning nobody's read it. Nobody's read it, like the great books of so many people. Didn't read it, yeah. Yeah. And, and do some of this tying together of things, you know, that uh, what Michael said about science yep. and kind of take us, if you can, to perishable currency, and we can interject. Okay. So um, in grad school at McGill, he spent, he split his time in half. He spent half a time pure empirical research on alcoholism, so pure pharmacological research. And then the other half of the time, he was spending his time with Young and all the psychoanalytic insights. And he was like, I start to see the, the, the overlap. And then a lot of other uh, thinkers like a Yak Pangsap or some others were making those connections too. And then what he's trying to do is bring those worlds together so that they don't have to be at odds anymore. And that's his fundamental goal. And this might seem rushed, but he, to see how he thinks, he's trying to bring us back to lived experience at the center of the universe. So he'll say he likes to use wordplay to indicate how our paradigms have shifted throughout the evolution of consciousness. He would say back, let's say a thousand years ago, when our subjectivity was still heavily imbued in matter. So there was that distinction between subject and object was not nearly as clear. He would say what was most real to us was what matters, right? From a phenological point of view. But now in a material stage, we say dead matter. And you would say, that's not a coincidence. Another yeah. example, um, in the phenomenological point of view, what objects to you is most real. Because like, think of the famous gorilla experiment in psychology. You only notice what's in your goal, in your goal vision, and you only notice things that object. Or like you know? things that offer you resistance. Is that what you're talking yeah, about? Yeah, exactly. 
Some things object to you, okay. In your lived experience. But now we think that objects are the most real thing. And then what my dad's been hinting at was when I read those last 40 pages twice in a row, I was like, where is the hole? Because there's gotta be a hole. And then I thought in the, he, his last 10 pages is called the divinity of interest. And this is one of his big conclusions. Michael, isn't it so funny that my essay I wrote before Aiden started, it's all on interest and interest. Yeah, that's right. We had not right. talked about this at all. We had not, Aiden yeah. and I. Go ahead. So he would say this whole theory would be what guides your interest is not random. He would say that's like maybe the Jungian self. or It's the, the golden thread of William Blake or something. Yeah, exactly. Like. So what, that's what's guiding. So he said that's the only route to salvation. That's the only route for correct adaptation, even though that's way it has too much science in those wording, but that's what he's kind of hinting at. But now I don't think it's a coincidence that our culture, what we rely on now is intra. And as my dad always says, the worst is the corruption of the best. And so now what I see is, so a large part of that last chapter is how the dream of alchemy gave rise to science. And the goal of alchemy was right to push the lapis philosorum, uh, the philosopher's stone can transform all base metals. So lead into gold. And in the, this Gazelle book, right, the spiritual currency, um, he calls gold the archetype of death because it's, for me, it's like everything Apollonian, everything that has to do with male consciousness, right? The form, the known. But when that known becomes too old, too stultifying, it becomes very dead. And then um, the idea that right now, if you get enough money, enough gold, you can live off your interest forever. And that is a solution to life. Those two paradoxes, the interest. As opposed to working in the office, everybody wants just to hustle where they can get enough money and live off their interest, right? Yeah. And so then that becomes interest in the sense of like loan becomes the way of surviving this world, not following your interest. So I think that's another example of the two different times. React to that, Michael Martin. Uh, Well, actually, I just read this this week. I'm researching. I got to give a presentation on the Russian uh, sophiologist Pavel Florensky next month. He's great, isn't he? And check out what he said here in this 1921. He says, history has days and nights. Periods of night are are dominated by the mystical element, numinal will, susceptibility, femininity. Daytime periods of history are characterized by a more active superficial interaction with the phenomenal will and masculinity. The Middle Ages were a period of night. The modern age is a daytime period. We are now at the threshold of a new Middle Age. In its depths, the Christian world is me. And he thinks, and he thought in 1921, they were on the cusp of this, right? Going from this, like you were saying, this uh, kind of left brain, masculine, gold-centered thing. And he thinks we're moving toward a more mystical, participatory kind of consciousness. Feminine, even. Which I think, and I, and I think you see, you see that, that, that struggle in the world right now between the World Economic Forum and the, and the Great Reset and me, <laughs> you know, and people who don't want to do that and who don't, who reject it, not because they, they're old funny does it, they reject it because it's inhuman, right? And I think that's in our podcast, that's with sophiology. Yeah. It's connecting with that, not just the intuitive, but the human, right? The real, as we like to say. And I think that's what you were talking about there. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and I think that's, that's what I, you know, there is that part of Peterson where, when he goes full young and you, you're doing alchemy, you're going full young, right? Yeah. And that's what Young was trying to do was to get people to integrate their personality, to, to not act out of persona and to, you know, to become fully human. That's just his whole project was to help people develop the tools to become fully human, to integrate their, 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 their masculine side with their 
their anima or their feminine with their animas, right? Which I think is such a brilliant insight, which, you know, it's too bad so many psychoanalysts and psychologists dismiss that as, and I think, well, I think what you see now is because people have dismissed that, look what we have now. We have people trying to work that out mechanically. Biologically, mechanically. Bio, not even yeah, biologically, yeah. materialistically, right? I've got a thought too that like, you know, um, two things on that. One is, you know, if Aiden said Gen Z, like they, they can't tolerate anything but authenticity, you know, so that Joe Rogan through stand-up comedy and things like he, he, he either works or he doesn't, that's authentic. My thought connected to that is I've told you how, I think it was Tom Berg, maybe it was young, but said the definition of charm, I guess, and somebody's charming is this integration, the man with the anima and the woman with the animus. And I bet you charm has a pretty strong overlap with authenticity, right? Yeah. yeah. You know, the people are, they're going to, re- but, uh, one other thing, and I don't know, Aiden, you can reflect on this a little bit, like that generation's obsession with um, authenticity, I've always wanted to put in, you know, it makes us nervous dealing with them because like, if you make a mistake, you're a hypocrite because the opposite is hypocrisy. The opposite isn't necessarily inauthenticity for them. If they see any hypocrisy, like they're out. So I'm constantly quoting, you know, hypocrisy is vice paying tribute to virtue, that old kind of tagline <laughs> that in one sense, when I'm if I'm my best self, but I'm just trying to be nice to people, you know, maybe I'm not inauthentic. I really hate this person, but I'm trying to be kind that I hope your generation can be a little more forgiving for those of us who are still trying to work it out. But on the other hand, uh, relate to charm and authenticity, Aiden, are we barking up a tree that you can identify with and what Michael said? Yeah. So, yeah. So the biggest, and I'll go back to the office. I think it's not a coincidence that two of our favorite shows, Parks and Rec and The Office are mock documentaries, because what you see is when they do their interviews, they- they say these things and Michael Scott always does this. He says how great he is or something, how he's a really good basketball player. But then you cut to the, the show and then you see how it's all a lie, just talking to the camera. And we find that hysterical because we see that everywhere we look. So I think that's why like the format draws so much to us. And yeah, we are very sick of people talking just to save themselves, like just to show to like protect themselves from the onslaught. You should be. And then the simple fact that Jordan Peterson like we weren't even that interested in his ideas, but he just spoke what he believed. And then that was enough to capture the interest of like millions of young guys. And interest, yeah, interest. The fact that he was just saying what he believed to be true. And then he was actually interested in the stuff he was talking about. We're like, wow, you don't see that too often. And then that was enough just for us to be like, this guy's worth listening. When I, when I went to see him and he was in Rochester, Michael, uh, I thought it was, again, by and large, a healthy phenomenon. So at, at some point, I'd introduced Aiden to it, never knowing where he'd go with it. And we, uh, Jordan Pearson came to speak at, you know, Kodak was Rochester's big auditorium. But he was his first big tour he was speaking, and I went. And again, the medium is the message. But I will validate that the, the crowd, predominantly male, was young men, maybe some fathers, but that's where they were. It was not this culture warrior thing at least early, they were there because they, it was just so refreshing to hear somebody comfortable in the face of questions and somebody who was speaking their mind. And it was, it was good. And we listened to him for an hour and a half, talk about like TikTok and short attention spans. Young men are cluing into his lectures on the Bible that are like three hours of pop, you know, in these interviews with Joe Rogan, you know, people have made the connection uh, Peterson himself did between that's a weird phenomenon. Like these interviews with Joe Rogan are like three hours, which are about yeah. the length of the Lincoln Douglas debate. So we're seeing something really cool there. Um, any thoughts, Michael? Cause I also want to say that like maybe another time Aiden down the road, he's got this massive theory that I won't tell you about Michael drawn from Jordan Peterson, but it's uh, and I won't even have, I think it's too big. Don't you agree Aiden for today? Culture bricking. 
Yeah. <laughs> it's huge. Uh, it's epic. Uh, give us give us 30 seconds to a minute. So I see us see us beginning yeah. that I like to test all my ideas through disc golf. So then Peterson talked about how like a part of young is adopting a culture, right? Enculturation. And then I was playing disc golf and I was like, I'm adopting different forums all the time. So now I was just doing that. Then I made the connection that my form in disc golf is equivalent of Young's known. And then I would start missing my shots. And then I would say ideology, ideology. And I didn't know why I was saying ideology. And then you look at Peterson's things like, oh, when the form starts to saltify and become rigid and prevents the water of life from rejuvenating it, it, in basketball, it's called a brick shot. And I think the use of brick is not a coincidence at all. I think it's going drawing off wall symbolism heavily. So like walls are always you keep out the water chaos, right? Uh, paradise means walled garden and the pro- proper places and just the right amount of water, but not over flood, not having completely dry, completely dry. It's a brick shot. And then a made basketball shot is called wet. And I don't think that's a coincidence either. And I use my- When somebody's in the flow, like a Stefan yeah, Curry, yeah. just at three, they might say like that dude, that's yeah. wet. And you young, know? it's called like the water of life is the archetype that rejuvenates the old form or the old culture. And the fact that we use that terms in basketball to describe that, I think is very interesting. And then just a way to explain that better would be um, like a fake smile would be like a brick smile. That's right. An authentic smile comes from the body up. You don't know why you're smiling, but you smile. But then a fake smile is you think about how to smile. So you're re-representing the smile and then it's stiff and awkward. And that'd be like a brick smile. And then another way to think about it would be um, why does the first bite of an apple taste the best? Because the first bite is like the, the closest to the sacred, the real. But the second bite, then you just start remembering what the apple tastes like, not the apple itself. And that would be the equivalent of as you eat, starting start to focus on the form, the represent more so than real thing. And then I would say in Town, one of the musicals, both me and my dad like a lot. Oh, uh, Michael's familiar with her music. Yeah. So Hades is called, Orpheus calls Hades the king of bricks because he's always building a wall around a city and just to keep out everything because, right, it's all purely reliant on technology and science. And then that is what might lead them to, to salvation. So yeah, that was quick. I think, I think these are insights with legs. <laughs> yeah. It's heavy. I like it. Any response to that, Michael, or should we kind of sing uh, our well, song? I, I think, yeah, I mean, it's the same thing Jung calls persona. Exactly. This mask you wear, you pretend like in academia is rife with them, but, but every profession is, right? So how, and, and that's the thing for me, even, and I think, uh, you know, social media and the internet make it so easy to turn yourself into a persona or an avatar and not authentic. So that's that's definitely the challenge of our time is how to make in the face of all the forces that would like to turn us to product, right? Or ideology. The, the other thing, I, as you guys are talking, I was remembering when I was finishing my undergraduate degree, my mentor, who was this great professor who who went to Oxford and did his doctorate at Oxford. And he would give me all these tutorials, like an Oxford tutorial I had no idea at the time. I said, what do you think I should do next? And he said, I think you should go to the Young Institute in Geneva. Oh, you should have. I should, well, I had I already had two kids by that time, so I didn't go. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, I mean, so I, it's a bit, this has been a great discussion because it's carried me back to when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, you guys um, are great interlocutors. Ideas yeah. that are still important. Yeah. That are still important. Yeah. And and I and I and I'm glad that Jordan Peterson's out there in the world, at least asking the question. Yeah, I might not always be satisfied with the answers, but I am glad he is asking those questions. Yeah, maybe for Aiden, for your generation, instead of saying somebody's a hypocrite again, which is a condemnable thing. I think if you guys, when somebody's putting on a persona 
and playing these roles and things to say, dude, you're bricking, you know, and uh, real. Yeah. Well, this has been awesome. Yeah. Um, nice time. Aid will have you back. Keep on doing what you're doing and um, make sure you clean up your room. Uh, you oh, know, yeah. listen to your mother, right? Yeah, because you're not separate from your room. Phenomenology, that's his main thing. <laughs> <laughs> we got to end this thing oh. <laughs> before I get like owned. Uh, Michael, have a good weekend. And uh, yeah. thanks everybody for listening to the Regeneration Podcast. We're going to see you here next week. We have a guest lined up who's I think going to blow your mind a little bit. Don't you think, Michael? I do think so. This might be the most far out we've gone. And we're going to be asking you know, <laughs> questions of it. But we're inviting for a conversation something that's... Uh, uh, to me, pretty far out. And I'm very interested to use that word that we've used many times today. Thanks, Aiden, for being on. Thanks, Michael. Have a good okay. week. And thanks for listening, everybody, to the Regeneration Podcast. We'll see you next week.